0: If you talk to the great physios, the great physical conditioning coaches, um, and, and in fact, if you go to individual sports, if you look at the great technical coaches who develop great tennis players or great track and field um, athletes, they don't really see the difference between rehab and performance.
1: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. We all know that speed and anything to do with speed, especially in team sports, has absolutely boomed over the last 6, 12 or 18 months. But I'm going to put my head on the block now and say the next hour and 20 minutes from Alan Murdoch and Jonas Dodu, is some of the best content you'll find on speed training anywhere. Fact. There's some absolute gold in this. And we've framed this episode around using speed in the rehabilitation setting. But it's so transferable to the performance setting, if, if they are indeed any different at all anyway. But it's an absolute gold mine, Trust me. Um, Alan is absolutely superb Jonas, like I mentioned in the episode be on this podcast just as many times as I have and anyone that's listened to him or seen any of his content before knows how good he is so trust me, the next hour and 20 minutes are an absolute gold mine. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable, and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or Follow them on Twitter or Instagram at I Measure You. So, without further ado, over to the episode with Jonas Dodu and Alan Murdoch. Thanks, for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast so this morning. I am delighted to welcome Alan Murdoch and Jonas Dodu. So, welcome to the podcast, guys.
0: Okay, thanks Thank for everyone. having us. Coffee at the
1: ready. Yeah, it's coffee, quarter tea. past
0: seven. Yeah, everything ready.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're gonna just in the. Um, well, just because of time, we're going to skip on the intros, or deep intros, plus Jonas has been on here just as much as I have, I think. Um, yeah. Third time, third time, <laughs> third time lucky, oh, we're all good. Um, so Jonas, to you first, brief intro, and yeah. then we'll go to Alan for his little brief intro as well, and then we'll dive into the meat of the conversation.
0: Let me quit all my other apps, yeah. Um, brief intro from me, I'm Jonas, I'm director of speedworks and and head coach up here in Loughborough. Um, I love coaching. I love coach education. Um, I love um, speed and I'm in search of the truth. And so rather than being completely, uh, I'm going to say limited by what I've learned and uh, completely driven by what's come before me, I cherish it. I love it, but I'm trying to search for a way forward, a way that uh, enables people to come to maybe some of my conclusions um, that I've come up with over the past 15 years, but quicker. And and that's why I'm in love with Alan. Yeah, Because at the end of the day, I look at him and I learn from him. And what I really learned the most is that he's been able to synthesize what, what I preach and what I push. And he summarized it in such a nice way that's uh, enabled a lot more coaches to understand um, my philosophy a lot quicker so there you go I've, I've started my intro by saying I love Alan instead of saying <laughs> I love my wife um, um, this is going to be a challenging uh, next <laughs> next couple of hours when I come off this podcast but there you go that's my brief and short uh, cool intro
1: nice mate thank you Alan he set you up perfectly there take it away
2: um, well I'm the recipient of the love um, so I am head coach at uh, Speedworks Bath and I uh, just came out of professional rugby at Bath Rugby. Um, and I guess the big summary there was that I went through a journey that most young SNC coaches probably went through from doing their SCA to going through the ranks through academies, et cetera, um, and learning the trade. And, and then I started to move into the, the ranks of the senior team and get involved in the rehabilitation side of things at the club. Um, and I started to recognize that there was a big gap in my knowledge from um, just from, from my journey that existed around um, speeds, the end stage of return to play, and the role that speed actually has within the rehab process and my own like big philosophy as well. So I reached out to Jonas, got in contact with him while I was still working at the club um, and started to recognise that actually my experiences up until that point had really been more gym based um, and and kind of traditional, I guess you would say for, for most strength and conditioning coaches um, that I've spoken to anyway. And um, it opened my eyes to a new world of, of physical development and um, and how we can change what we do. And um, eventually, I decided that I was going to go out on my own and, and uh, formed a partnership with Jonas. And um, now I'm at Bath doing my doing my own thing. And um, I speak to Jonas most days, and we bounce off each other and um my philosophy has drastically changed as a result of that and and it's really been quite eye-opening to work with some some incredibly um elite athletes but also um some regular athletes as well um and other coaches and starting to recognize that actually there's a whole other world out there in terms of what speed can offer and the the thought process that that can give us in terms of how we apply our trade and, and make as much change as possible within the short time frame that we're, we're allowed with our athletes. So um, I guess that would be the that would be the summary. Um, and and then we'll discuss it again in the next in the next hour.
1: Nice, mate. What's the transition like been like from professional sports to self-employment?
2: Um, do you know, I, I was actually, I was really, I, I guess, scared was probably the, the right word, if I'm honest. Um, I had this secure job and, and it was at a, a club that had a lot of prestige and I really didn't know what, to come, what was to come, but actually I've found for me, it's given me this new lease of life to, to surround this, myself with the people I want to surround myself with, um, go, and, go and suck knowledge out of the people I want to, to, to do that from, um, and also um, really have the license to experiment more um, without the shackles of, of being a part of a bigger, bigger establishment or a, a bigger, bigger team. Um, and the results from you have been they've been unbelievable not only from like the physical side of things for the athletes but it's also just given me so much freedom as a coach to actually go and explore and, and see what I can do with things and where I can take it that's different um, and it's been it's been awesome it's been unbelievably exciting and I've learned so much in the process so it's been great
1: nice mate and someone next to you with plenty of experience in this area as well navigating navigating this world Jonas
0: yeah, well, the the world of speed or the world of self employment, which one? Both. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I'm. 2012 was when I stopped working for British Athletics, so it's, I guess it's nearly 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. Um.
1: Just... Congratulations, making this far. Yeah. yeah. It's no mean feet, is it? Like, all, not all jokes aside. Mm. It's it can be mayhem at times.
0: It can be mayhem, but... and, and you know, when I was before we were a family, when it was just me, it was it was relatively easy because. I could live on bread and, and, and chicken, really. Like that's that could be my, my five a day. Um and, and yeah, the challenges happen as your family grow and um, and, and as and you know, you, you can I could land a new contract of a new team and I could be really, really happy and go, Yeah, the bank account and I come home and I'll tell my wife and she'd be like, yeah, yeah, good, well done and I'll tell my kids and they'll be like, Okay But daddy I've i my pants, I'm like, Okay, <laughs> It's like like your day carries on as normal. There is nothing that new that changes. So like whereas before it's like yay business work definitely big motivator for me. But um you come home and if if things aren't sorted at home it doesn't matter. You could be king of a castle. You could be you know you could be full stack So you could be vowed. You could be your your business could be doing great things right. But um if the other side isn't sorted, yeah it's no fun. Let's
1: mm-hmm. have a little chat around this amalgamation of the, the rehab world and, and speed where where is this where is that at and where is where are the gaps that you guys potentially see that you can fit in a very global sense I'll come to you first Jonas then we'll we'll dive back to Alan.
0: Mm. I think that if you look if you talk to the great physios, the great physical conditioning coaches um and and in fact, if you go to individual sports, if you look at the great technical coaches who develop great tennis players or great track and field um, athletes, they don't really see the difference between rehab and performance. Um, and Jordan mendigucci's big one that he keeps saying is that um, it prevention is not an exercise. It's not a Nordic. It's not a Copenhagen. Prevention is a philosophy, right? Prevention is how you understand... Um, your sport, how you understand your your coaches and how you understand the athletes you have and how you take those three maybe core components and recognize what you need to do to gradually build to your worst case scenario training and that that really is what prevention is understanding your sport at its worst case and reverse engineering from that and giving the athlete the building blocks so they can deal with that, be it from off-season, pre-season, into your, your, you know, the, the heart of, of, I don't know, Christmas for football is probably the, the worst period or or maybe approaching some of the worst period for, for rugby as well. Um, so I, I think that how you see performance and you see the underpinning qualities of performance, if you see it the way, at least I think, we're now starting to see it, you don't really separate rehab and physical preparation. You see it as one and you take the individual in front of you in the state that they come to you in and you figure out what they need right now to, to get them from here to there. And so it's a bit general, a bit and a bit fluffy, but it, it's looking at it that way has really helped me go, okay, that's why when I've had to rehab a grade three, uh three C hamstring injury, I've walked away and the player has come back faster so not just come back quickly but when they've returned they've run faster they've been more confident in their ability to step on the gas or to decelerate and and re-accelerate in a different direction and it's made me wonder and the same things happened with all my hamstring rehabbers with, in track and field they've returned faster so then i asked myself is my training intervention for rehab not just my performance intervention through the rehab process, have I not just learnt better how to load specific tissues in a way that is going to transfer better to performance? And have I not just found a better, I guess, uh, proportion of how to train? And, and actually in, in the past, was I, was I just doing what maybe I was taught to do or what the constraints of that team has restricted me to do? Not necessarily the best thing for the athlete and for performance.
1: Just, just coming to you, Alan. Why should speed be at the the forefront of people's mind when, <clears throat> excuse me, when starting the rehab process? Not just thinking of it as the final bit that gets tagged on the end to kind of give them the, the tap on the back to to go return to, to full training.
2: Yeah, it's it's a really it's almost like flipping it on its head. I think when it's at the top of the pyramid, it acts as your reference point, your framework for decision making. Um, so historically in, in traditional models, everything's been very segmental. It's like, we'll, we'll go into the gym and we're gonna get this one body part and we're gonna get it really, really strong. And by the time it's strong, then we're, then we're gonna go out onto the pitch and then we're gonna start thinking about running. And um, there, there is a time and a place for that. There's a time and a place to develop the physical qualities, I think, of, of, of the muscle in isolation, because if it has a weakness, then um, certainly the body's gonna reroute around that weakness. Um, but I think when speed sits at the top of the pyramid and it influences your decision making, I think all of a sudden you can start to ask questions of your process, starting to say from day one, if this doesn't have an influence on their ability to run fast, be agile, decelerate, change direction, repeat that, be efficient, and ultimately be more fit for purpose, then it, it doesn't have a place in the, in the entire thing. It doesn't have a place in the, in the process. And I think it it really needs a good, solid understanding of what speed is and and some bigger uh, philosophical points around speed and what those are. So to me, those are like your big forces, your short time frames, your right directions, and, and arguably the most important one for me that we miss out on so often is done the right way. So when we talk about big forces, to me, that's, um, it's really about the contractile element. How much force am I producing isometrically, eccentrically, concentrically? Um, in the right time frame is more rate of force development. Um, can I produce those big forces and start to decrease the time frame by which I'm applying those forces? And I think most coaches and SNCs will recognize that it's the player who can apply big forces in increasingly shorter time frames. Can they beat their opponent to to the mark that's actually going to be the performance um, kind of the big performance key milestone in terms of looking at player's ability Um, the right direction is for me at least um, makes it very simple in terms of my planning around what we're doing is it horizontally based or is it vertically based and I can start to split that up into acceleration and, and decel and change of direction type stuff versus max velocity and more vertical based um and that makes my planning of um my week of my stimulus that makes it that makes it quite simplistic for me in terms of laying out a week um and choosing what stimulus i want to i want to put in and then done the right way and this is the big one for me and this is this is probably the one i've learned from jonas the most um is jonas talks about bum before back and Initially, and I'm sure people have listened to the podcast before and heard this phrase, and when I first heard this phrase, I was <laughs> nodding, and I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> um, anyway, so once I start to become more um, familiar with speed and, and, and coaching speed and seeing speed and seeing the shapes and the patterns that speed needs, especially with really good athletes, you start to recognize that they, they are able to use their backsides more, their, their, their bums, their, their hips they're able to generate forces with that area of their body and transmit that force down into the floor. And I guess it's the same with a thrower as well. If you can generate force um, proximally closer to the pelvis and closer to the trunk and transmit that into a ball or a bat or a racket or whatever, um, you get this lovely sequential acceleration like a whip. Um, And when we are, I think when we're in the gym, um, what we see is people doing the right stuff, right? We see people... um, Doing various exercises targeted at trying to elicit a certain adaptation that's that's targeting the injury, but what we see a lot of the time is somebody loading up a glute bridge or or maybe a hand clean or whatever it might be, and you see them lifting loads of weight and we celebrate that. Strength and conditioning coaches, I think we have a habit of celebrating loads. Like we're like, ah, two hundred kg glute bridge, what a legend! This rehab's (laughs) going. This rehab's going really well. Um. But what we don't tend to look at, well, how is he lifting that weight with, with that 200 kilograms on his hip? Is he using his hip to drive that weight and be really proximal to distal without um, flaring his ribs open or, or using his erectors to drive that hip extension? Is his chin way back or is it on his chest with a nice quiet spine to, to complement that hip drive and that proximal to distal? And a power clean, and this is a big one for, for ACL that I see, um, and I actually, I learned this at the Santry Clinic in Dublin with Ender King. Um, and looking at people who do power cleans and variations of jumps, and when they catch that, um, that weight and that landing mechanism, are they all quad based or, or can they dissipate that force through their hip? Can they balance the load distribution through knee and through hip? Or do they all go onto the fronts of their knees? Um, And there's little cues that exist in the in the gym, I think, and in drills and various things that start to tell you whether somebody or not is actually that bum before back strategy, that really efficient strategy, or whether or not um they're they're the opposite. Whether they might be effective in terms of going from A to B, but very definitely not efficient. And I think rehab provides us this lovely opportunity, and Jonas alluded to it there, that rehab is just good training, right? Um, like it should. It's, it's basically the one opportunity that we get as coaches to have a long period of time to do things the right way without any interruptions of games and fatigue and extra load, etc. Um, that actually we can start to coach people to be more efficient. And it's the more efficient guys are the ones that can, certainly that I see, the ones in game that can repeat their efforts. Instead of doing one effort that takes it all out of their tank, they can start to repeat it. They can be... They can be athletes who last for the game, who have performance moments at the last minutes of the game, who aren't absolutely dead after 10 minutes because they've exerted all their energy being effective for 10 minutes, not 80 or 90. Um, And that to to me is what good rehab is. And that to me is what having a speed-based approach around different principles like that start to influence how we do a really good job in in what may be a six-week, six-month, nine-month process, depending on the injury. Just
1: coming, stay with you, Alan. <clears throat> come to you in a minute, Jonas. Is it the fact that you've been a speed coach and, and had that speed emphasis, and then taken that mindset into the gym that you're thinking about the things that you're talking about there, versus the opposite, versus someone that's very gym based, very gym dominant, and then trying to translate that onto the pitch in terms of speed? Maybe has that that gap there is the bit that you guys can potentially plug as speed coaches doing it in the reverse
2: yeah i think so and i think it just comes down to to looking at movement i think if you're if you're immersed in watching um complex movement not complicated but complex movement lots of things happening that interact with each other um like speed like agility um breaking all that stuff I think that's the end outcome. Like we, The reason we go into the gym is to enhance those abilities. So if you start at the top end, if you start looking at movement and starting to see, well, these strategies and these these sequencing of, of muscle activation are the ones that the guys who are eff- efficient and effective at what they're doing on the pitch showcase, then we can reverse engineer that back into the gym. I think if you start in the gym and you're all about squat pattern, deadlift pattern, your press, your pull, I think there's huge value in that for sure, but it makes it very difficult to then take that and then link it to what is something that's far more complex out on the pitch. So I think to do a good job, you've got to reverse it back from what is probably the most complex and the most um, demanding situation for your eye. And I think certainly for me two years ago, I was the opposite, like going out and coaching speed and coaching movement and having intricate conversations about something as simple as um shin roll and pinning your shin and understanding what that means to push your bum forward and accelerate well that would i would have been like whoa no let's go back to the gym please um because that's where i was comfortable but having done the speed coaching having failed numerous times and done terrible jobs occasionally with certain certain people to then get better and better and better. I think that has allowed me to go back into the gym and what allows Speedworks to be able to go back into the gym and start to see different movement patterns and coach intersegmental coordination that influences performance more than the other way around.
1: Jonas, Alan mentioned the bum before back. Anyone that is not demonstrating what you want to see there, mm. what what are the first places that you would go to 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 Alter that and make that look as how you want it to look.
0: Well, well, firstly, what am I looking for? And I think before people think it's some really, like Alan said, complicated thing. It's not. It's just an understanding of what a good hinge pattern really should look like. Yeah. So if we just take ourselves to a, a simple straight leg uh, deadlift, an RDL, right? Um, and we have to ask ourselves when the person is bending over in the RDL, are they, is there like a, a balance between their bum going backwards and their trunk coming forwards? Or actually, is there is their hip staying where it, it is and, they, and they're just bending forwards at the trunk? Right. Or are they sitting back a bit? And, and I remember reading or, or it was something Franz Boschy maybe a long time ago and an in, introduction to one of his exercises was just to stand with a wall behind you, maybe a couple inches with your bum away from the wall and to do your deadlift pattern and your first initiation, the first feeling you need to start to feel is both your your shoulders forward, going forward but also your bum touching the wall. You're feeling that hinge at your hip. And so that's almost my feeling of how you create the space and create the flexion, and then most importantly, how do we stand up out of it? Do we stand up with the initiation of our head and our shoulders and our diaphragm lifting so that our erectors can be the driver, so our lats can can, can be the driver, or actually is our, is our spine quiet, like Alan said, and actually our bum pushing forwards, force going through the ground, bracing through our, our hinging through our hamstrings to, and, and our glutes to support that push, and then the spine comes secondary to it. So that is the really the simplest way to look at it. You might see the same thing in a in a hip bridge, in a hip hinge, you know, um, some kind of hip bridge, single leg, double leg, whatever it is. Where actually, again, your diaphragm, your trunk is not the first and major movement that occurs. Really, it occurs because you push through the ground through your feet. And that initiates your hips to rise. And maybe there's a bit of a a posterior tilt as they rise. And okay, you might get some lordosis. You might get some spine uh, movement. That's not the issue. The spine is meant to move. Um, The question is, what's the driver? Um, So I don't know if I'll answer your question, but I wanted to be clear there for the listeners and the viewers that Bum before back is not some special thing that you need a, a, a scope on your eye to be able to see. It really is just really efficient movement that means um, the right muscles are doing the right jobs. Yeah, they're not sharing. They're not They're not doing the wrong jobs. The, the erectors are there to keep your spine erect for sure, but biggest muscle in your body is your bum, and, and we know that should be the driver.
1: So taking the ADL as an example, Jonas, and then the transfer to what you would see on the pitch on the track why is all them things them intricate things that you've just talked about why is that so important and what if getting that wrong mm. how does that transfer to things that you don't want to see okay. on the on the grass of the track
0: fine i think bum before back is important because um alan mentioned six sequential acceleration yeah so this this proximal to distal um pattern and what we see like there's a lot there's enough literature to to give us the 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 proof and the clarity is that that's the most explosive way to work that's all the most efficient way to be explosive let's say um and so when you take that to the pitch what do you see? You see, um, again, if you if the biggest muscle in your body should be a bum for some people, it's their quads, yeah. But it should be a bum, and we know that. Okay, your your bum and your posterior chain are, are massive drivers for speed and for power. We also know even if um, uh, even if your quad seems to be the driver, that uh, 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 if your posterior chain is not involved with with good co contractions, that actually will now increase in the likelihood of injuries, specifically ACLs. Um, and so, we, and, and actually, I think when you look at most of the injury patterns, um, they, a lot of them come back to, is there good co-contractions happening from the posterior chain with the anterior chain? Are the, is the groin and the long groin muscles working with the hamstrings and working with the quad to secure the knee or secure the ankle, secure the hip? So we've, we're constantly coming back to this need for, for the hamstrings, for the glutes, to be organised with the other muscle groups, even if they're not the main drivers of that movement. So even in deceleration, for example, where, of course, the the knee and the quad is going to be very heavily and and so is the ankle and the hip, right? But if the posterior chain is not involved, then we know that there's more likelihood of injury. But something as simple as just the direction of your force. If I'm accelerating and I want to go forwards... I really want to use my bum as the major driver. Now, you can look into the research and look into the EMG and the quad in early acceleration is heavily involved. It makes sense. But what we also see is that if you can't reduce your ground contact times every step as you're starting to accelerate in transition, increase your step time, increase your hip height, um, then... You actually stagnate in your acceleration. You have a decent early acceleration and it and it quickly decays. Right? So where there is a second stage to your acceleration. The first stage I'm gonna say is your first three to four steps. But what about your next five to six steps? What are you doing? Well, the actions that you need to be able to do there require that you transition your hips. And we don't want players to keep thinking about too many technical things. We kind of want them to have a pattern in early acceleration that is very similar or maybe identical to the pattern happening in mid, late and max velocity. So there are some complex interactions happening in this transition and the simplest solution is to start with your bum before back. If you start by throwing your shoulders forwards, having your bum involved in that, having your your spine quiet so that you're um, essentially so that you're pelvis stays stable and pin your shin, like Alan says, attacking the ground with a stiff ankle and a stiff shin enables you then to keep using your bum as the major driver. If you don't, so if you end up landing maybe out in front of your center of mass, really rolling your shin or using your shin roll across the run as your major major contribution to propulsion, then what you end up finding is that the knee becomes the dominant movement pattern. The knee becomes the dominant part of acceleration across the whole run. So your hips don't transition um, organically. So I talk about organic transition really being if you initiate your run with your shoulders going forwards, your bum being the driver and your ankle and shin being relatively stiff, you will naturally transition your hips every step because your shin always lands in the place where you can push forwards and up at the same time. But if you end up landing out in front, you don't end up switching your limbs effectively, you end up blocking, then you you set up this pattern of blocking first, rolling the knee, maybe even dropping your centre of mass and then pushing again. You set up a pattern where you have to stay on the ground in order to pro- to be propulsive as well as to not fall over. And so if you start that way, you're going to end that way. And, and, and that's probably really the biggest summary. If we want players to naturally get to good velocities, if we want them so forget max velocity, if we're talking about rugby, you might people say, oh, we never run at max velocity. So let's say we want them to accelerate really hard for really long. Yeah. Some people say, yeah, but I want them to get to max V even quicker. That's the aim. They're going to hit someone in 15 metres. So if you want them to accelerate really hard, really fast, then we'll say we're still saying all the same things. There is a second stage to acceleration that isn't your first three to four steps. And if we want that to happen organically, there is a a movement pattern that we have to condition. There is a a type of stability around the pelvis and and a reflexive pattern that we have to condition. And that is deterred and is basically destroyed if the quad, um, especially the lateral quad. But I'm just going to say the quad, the knee is the main propulsive Um, mechanism or or part of your body and your bum and your hamstrings are are quiet, are are shy um, and are left in the back seat.
1: Alan, coming to you next. Thanks, Jonas. Um, Starting early in the rehab process with speed in mind, can you give us some examples of how people may translate that into something visual and, and how you may do that in, in an example that you've got,
2: I think it starts with um, an understanding of like some of the, those big key tenets of speed. So not just the big four, like big forces, short time frames, etc. is is very vague. is very big. I think we need to dive down a little bit deeper and go and investigate some of the work from maybe Ken Clark and Peter Whalen, people like that, and start to understand. Okay, these are these are some of the technical physiological things that influence speed? And then we can break that down even further and then I can I can try and answer that question, Rob. Um, and to me, really, um, all the summary of that work is basically, can somebody um, prepare early for ground contact? Can they whack the ground really hard and can they then spike their ground reaction forces and get off the ground? Um, and have this elastic... Uh, response on the floor to try and um, spike up that ground reaction force and then move into the next cycle as they, they recover their leg. That to me basically is a very neat summary of being able to run fast. Um, and if we go into that a little bit deeper, um, we talk about having a stiff stance leg uh, is one of the, one of the things that, that Ken Clark talks about and having a stiffness, a system stiffness so that you don't yield on ground contact, you don't leak your forces, you apply them into the force and uh, into the ground. And if you've done what Jonas has said there and you've used this bum before back strategy, you've earned the right to then, as you transition, start to hit the ground really hard with a stiff stance leg and not leak any of that force. Um, One of the other things is being able to switch your thighs and they refer to that as thigh angular velocity, but basically can I with speed alternate my thighs back and forward, can I dissociate my pelvis? So that's one of the other key physical qualities, the key key physical abilities to be able to run fast. Um, and then we've got this attacking from above type situation where we create time to create force with the thigh out in front of the body um, and, and high degrees of flexion where the other leg is the stance legs and extension. Um, and that gives us an opportunity to then really increase our foot velocity down into the floor to again spike those, those ground reaction forces. So those kind of tenants then start me to be able to think, okay, well, if I know those things are the, the, the things that influence speed and we're, we're having this performance based approach where we're going to try and incorporate the things we need to do to increase speed early. Um, I'm really going to go, into that stuff with a couple of streams of movement. Um, and those streams of movement are going to be, the first one is going to be the hip lock stream. So it's very Franz Boschy, but ultimately we're talking about, um, everybody always gives it a wry smile when you mention Franz Bosch. Don't they? Everybody always has a smile.
0: <laughs>
2: um, yeah, so basically what we're talking about there is, can I extend one leg and one hip into the floor while the other leg is flexed? Um, while we have tension through our shin and through our foot in this position of um, almost like a, a right angle at the pelvis um, and what that's doing is it's allowing us to explore that that's lateral hip strength, that glute strength, that hamstring strength of being able to extend that stance leg. It's developing stiffness qualities and coordination around the pelvis um, and when we go back to those things that I talked about, being stiff stance leg and attacking from above, being one of them, um, one of the key tenants to increase your speed, then we can start that stuff almost straight away. As long as you can extend your knee and extend your hip, you can drop into some hip lock work straight away. And you can start to strengthen up that lateral hip and be able to explore the patterns that are certainly helpful and have an impact on some of that stiffness around the leg. Um, So that would be one of the first ones that I do. And for people, the listeners who are trying to imagine what that looks like, um, if you're standing and balancing on one leg, um, straighten out your leg and squeeze your butt. And then on the other leg, flex the hip at 90 degrees, point your toes up and keep your shin underneath your hamstring. Um, Certainly not out in front, but underneath your hamstring. And then if you extend into the floor with that hip, um, you'll start to feel a burning sensation up the, the outside of the stance leg. Um, but you should also start to feel the hip flex on the psoas working on the alternate side, the free leg side. And once we've, once we can achieve that and we can build capacity there and that can be done, um, I've, I've started doing that stuff like six days post surgery, five days post surgery, um, really, really early. Um, then we can start to incorporate a lot of stuff around spinal, spinal mechanics. Um, and I was introduced by Jonas to this concept of the spinal engine, which Basically, is some work done by I think his name is Serge Gratovetsky, I think somebody's probably going to message you and say I've murdered that name, but I think that's what it is. Um, and he talks about the lateral rotation and flexion of the spine contributing to increasing forces through the pelvis. And they looked at I think it was I think it was Russia, and they looked at um, paraplegic uh, populations and tried to understand well how do people with no legs still managed to get themselves, still managed to locomote. Um, and what they found was they started to study the spine and they started to find that actually the rotation that we see at the spine, the flexion and rotation that we see at the spine, actually is a big key driver to what happens at the pelvis and dissociating the pelvis between flexion and extension and being able to drive forces into the floor and ultimately locomote. Um, so once we, once we introduce our hip lock stuff, then we can start to introduce movement around the spine and and reaches and flexions and we can start to turn that into dynamic movements, etc. Um and I think these things start to one, induce coordination adaptations, start to induce neural adaptations around coordination to drive extra force and and, and help people understand how they manipulate their body to try and create force and locomote efficiently. Um, the second thing, and this is maybe the biggest thing in rehab, uh is that people really once there's an explanation and a rationale um people really buy into it they they start to recognize oh well i'm not just i'm not in the gym at day eight and i've just come out of surgery and oh my god i'm now starting to talk about strengthening my quad like it's the last thing i want to do i'm i'm sore i'm, I'm disengaged i'm injured this is rubbish um but actually when you can link it to all of this stuff starts to drive performance and speed and efficiency on the pitch, it completely changes the game. People end up looking forward to their more control sessions. They look forward to um, the stuff that in traditional rehabs actually wouldn't have happened until maybe month six, but they're doing it at day six. All of a sudden there's a bigger buy-in to that process. So that's the first one, the hip lock stream, and that's kind of linked towards that bum before back, that projection that we always talk about and um, being able to extend your hip. Um, the next stream would be the reflex stream. So that to me is um, what Jonas calls reactivity, but basically your ability to, to get off the floor. Um, how elastic can you be? And that to me starts with things as basic as as foot intrinsics. Um, I don't think we potentially recognize the value of the ankle and the foot. Um, as much as maybe we do and I think we spend a lot of time in the gym and rehab developing this um, maybe for the right reasons as well right maybe somebody appreciates bum before back and they're right right we're going to develop cross-sectional area and force producing capabilities and motor control strategies around the glutes and the pelvis um, and you do all that but unless you develop the tissues and the elasticity around the foot and the ankle I don't think that this newfound force and coordination ability is going to be as as worthwhile as it possibly could have been maybe even detrimental unless we um, strengthen the end of the whip we talk about whipping from the hip right and that bum before back is giving us this perfect whip from the hip but unless the tip of the whip is reinforced the tip of the whip is going to come off pretty quickly because all this force is going through it so when when I think about um, the reflex side of things, it starts to me with really basic foot intrinsics. It moves to um, very gradual ankling and capacity work around temples, tib- the perineals, um, the feet themselves, and then it gradually starts to move through towards more reactive from um, from band assisted to unband assisted to all your plyometric progressions that move throughout. But um, that, to me, there's no excuse or no reason why we shouldn't be training the foot and the ankle very, very quickly. Um, and that's the second stream. And then the third stream um, would be the pretension, um, would be the switch, uh, the, the ability to interchange our limbs quickly. Um, and what that does, the ability to switch one leg from flexion to extension and vice versa between across the pelvis is that really starts to help athletes understand how to create pretension and preparation um, through the pelvis prior to ground strike. Now, that might start off with very, very basic walking, um, walking modalities where you understand how to um, flex one hip and extend the other hip and, and switch across those two, those two things. Um, and gradually the intensity of that increases through velocity um, gradually increases through complexity of the drill that you're asking people to do. Um, and by doing those three things, I think we address those qualities that I talked about, about that stiff stance leg, about scissoring the thighs quickly, about having that negative foot speed or that fast foot speed down into the ground to spike, spike those ground reaction forces. By starting those three streams early, hip lock, reflex and switch, I think we prepare um for running without actually running because all of those things initially will be done in place um before they start to move across the floor and i think that's key for people to understand is that you can do so much more than you think you can maybe do with injured athletes early in the, early on in the in the process as long as it's targeted to the demands of running fast and running efficiently um, And what I've found is that people buy into the return to one of the biggest things as well, I think, is that it it permits you to when you do return to running, when you do get back on your feet, you're so much more able to tolerate the demands of that running. And we employ a bit of a fast to slow approach, which means we um, the modalities that we do will be faster um, compared to slower ploddy type conditioning when we return to feet. All of a sudden we've built up the qualities necessary, the coordinations necessary to actually reap benefit out of those, those, um, that type of approach instead of spend three weeks trying to acclimatize to it. Um, so that's that's really when I say starting speed early in the in the the rehab cycle. That's what I'm doing. Um, in terms of what that looks like, uh, exercises that probably take me, take me a day or two to, to, to go through them all. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a philosophy. That's the approach. And what we found is that it engages players much more and physically and from a coordination point of view. Um, we can start to make use of the forces that we've, we've spent so long generating in the gym. Um, we can actually make use of them. And this phrase, um, if force is king, coordination's the crown. That comes to mind. Like we spend so much time really generating these big forces, but without going through those uh, those streams, we don't really have the right to utilize them as well as we should. Um, and if we don't do it early, then we're just gonna have to catch up time later down the line. So to me, it's time wasted.
1: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jonas and Alan. So in part two we kick off with a little bit of chat around some isolated foot and ankle exercises and why that's so important especially when it comes to sprint training in a rehab setting. Then we have a long talk about shin roll from Jonas and then on to Alan. And why shinroll, well, firstly, what shinroll is and why we need to worry about it in this sort of, um, in this sprint training, in a sprint training program. So some really interesting, again, gold mine coming up in part two. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is Sports' first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology, and data science experts with over 200 years' experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL. NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL, and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research, and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace lectures are delivered in an online classroom while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa applications are now open for courses including the BSc in strength and conditioning, MSc in performance coaching an MSC in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit SantaCollege.com for more information on how to apply. And back to the episode with Alan and Jonas. Alan, just coming back to you very quickly, but I'll, I'll get Jonas involved in this as well. A big push on the uh, on the foot and ankle in terms of training it, isolating it through JB, through Joel Smith, various other people. With that comes the skeptics that this has been, there's too much emphasis on it. There's, it's doing this, it's doing that. In terms of isolating the, whether it be a rehab process or not, training that area, any examples that you can give people to just get a picture in people's mind of, of how they may go about that?
2: Yeah, 100%. So a lot of barefoot activity. Um, so when we're, doing, um, when we're doing our drills to warm up, for example, I'm a big fan of using prep um, as a prep for performance for the exact thing that we're going to do it's not just a general prep so if we're going into a max speed session say um what i'll do is definitely get people shoes off let's get into our socks let's go through some drills let's go through our walks, a marches our wall drives our whatever it might be um let's do it barefoot and let's think about the tripod foot let's think about where our foot pressure is let's think about keeping tension through our foot um, the other side of things, if we're working, if this is more rehab setting, say we want to go um, shin and calf and foot combined. We want, to, we want to try and hit it all at once. Um, and we want to hit lateral hip as well. So we've got a, a decline board set at an angle. You're standing single-legged on that decline board, so your foot is on a slant. You've maybe pulled the band a band into a pal-off position um, and you're extending your hip and you're working really, really hard through the outside of your shin to try and create tension and stability through that foot. I think when we start to put bands on people and do foot intrinsics and spend 10 minutes doing our extension flexions, um, all that stuff, I think people disengage. I think what we need to do is find opportunities to tie in the foot and ankle, which is really easy. Barefoot's the way that I do it mostly, and, and um, another nice way to do it would be uh, the pre-tension around the foot and the ankle. So multi-surface jumps. So I just I'm thinking about this because I did it yesterday. Um. So we have maybe five obstacles. Uh, tackle shield for rugby, if you're familiar with what that is. Um, a couple of boxes, a yoga mat, and a weight plate. And all you're asking people to do is just rebound over and off the different surfaces, the different objects. And what that forces the body to do, what it forces the foot and ankle to do is pre-prepare, prepare early for a surface that it doesn't know what it's going to give it back. It doesn't know whether it's going to be sand and dissipate all the force. It doesn't know whether it's going to be a hard trap like object where the force is going to generate and you're going to, you're going to pop off that ground. So to avoid this huge disparity in um, landing and, and taking off, your body has to prepare and it prepares through the foot, has to prepare early through the foot. And that variable surface training is one, it's, it's, engaging, two, it feels like something an athlete would do. And three, it starts to train the, the foot, the ankle, the calf complex, um, to start to create those pre-tension abilities, that prep that early preparation um to get ready for ground strike. Because that's all we're doing it for, right? Is to is to really create an opportunity for that foot to transmit force into the floor, not leak into the floor. So that that's the type of stuff that I do and, and, and the more fun the better because foot and ankle training, like it's it's not fun, like it's not it's not glitzy, it's not glamorous, but it's very, very necessary and it can certainly be tied into other things which make it feel like, you know what, actually I am training speed here and my foot and my ankle are mad, mad important in this process. Because a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about to athletes, Jonas and, and myself included will be prepare for the floor. Don't let the floor meet you. Don't let the floor engulf you. You hit the floor. You whack the floor. You take command. And the foot is crucial to that.
1: Have you got any thoughts on that, Jonas?
0: Yeah, I've got notes here. I'm writing notes on, on as he speaks. Um, I, I Look, the last thing I wrote was this fun and the psychology of speed and the fact that you will have players that you need to engage with and you need to remain engaged through maybe a long-term rehab. You'll have managers and coaches and, and, and other players who are not injured who you'll need to engage because potentially you now see an opportunity to input on their ability to perform. And so the psychology of speed really becomes the biggest factor. When we talk on um, uh, periodization or skill development or whatever it is, there is so much discussion on everything away from what the athlete really wants or what is going to create buy-in and what's going to keep them engaged and driving not just surviving through your session but thriving and asking questions and learning and that those are the best environments we all want to be in and so um, I, I definitely look at exercise selection I look at all of this stuff we're talking on now and recognize that if you sit down or if you lie down and do a glute clam and you sit down and and Pull a towel in with your feet. It's something you can only really do for a few weeks in the rehab period. Before either the athlete completely disengages, they carry on, but there is no real mind muscle connection, or they've been it off completely. So when we think of exercise adherence, and when we think about getting the athlete to drive the process, it's far easier and simpler, at least for me, to. Um, Get them to stand up like Alan says, single leg. So let's say we're trying to activate the feet and we're trying to create some proprioception and some connection between the hip and the foot. You're far better off to standing up single leg and and teaching them the feeling of when their free hip drops, how much it creates, um, how much effort it requires to re- to be stable on their stance leg, versus when their free hip stays level or above. Oh, how much simpler, how much less shaky that is. Um, when their free hip stays above, and actually they push through the ground, how stable and strong they feel when you start to perturb them, as opposed to when they allow everything to drop, free hip to drop, overpronate. You know the, the inside of their ankle is touching the floor, um, and then now actually they they're struggling just to support their own body weight, let alone you pushing on them. Why is that important? Because then they you can turn around and say this is why we're doing it. And if the athlete can understand the why behind your cue or behind your exercise, they will take it on. You'll see them the next day in their warm up, and they will be doing it themselves because they've now seen and realised, okay, that makes sense. So I'm just listening to Aaron and I'm thinking it really does come back to if if you can connect the why between your exercise intervention and the movement pattern needed for the sport. I definitely think you get more buy in, and you can then be explore. That a lot further. If you don't make them connect the why, if you don't make them understand the the mechanism behind it, and I'm not understand it cognitively, but feeling wise, then yeah, you've kind of lost your crowd. So that that was the first thing I wanted to say there. Um, and then what else have I got on my list? Um, again, just this recognition that um, the foot is is the the only thing that makes contact with the ground generally. So we're producing all these big forces through the hip, and and disassociating it through through our pelvis, and one flexing, one's extending, and um, recognition that if you throw a massive punch and you've got a weak wrist, that you probably hurt yourself more than you do your you know your aggressor, yeah, the the person you're fighting, and the same things with the floor, and and actually. When we look at running cycle, we look at running pattern. We look at overstriding and long ground contact times, and and the shin rolling and the knee rolling. And I must come back to shin roll in a minute, by the way. When we see all of those things, we sometimes are coaching the switching mechanism, the leg exchange mechanism. But we've got to recognize that maybe actually for this athlete right now, uh, an overstriding um, profile is more efficient for them because they can't create the ankle stiffness. They're they have the, they're going to collapse even more if they're not given the time. So we're looking at what we would say is an inefficient running pattern and actually the limiting factor to it, we could say is switching, is limb exchange, but actually when they do switch, they put the foot down, it's soft. So the limiting factor is probably ankle. Uh, ankle, ankle strength, uh, ankle RFD, Ankle stability, something around the qualities of the foot and ankle, and that is just seems to be the most common thing I see in team sport players. They only really condition their foot and ankle at a performance level when they're injured, when they're doing an AC, when they're rehabbing an ACL, and and I've seen probably over a dozen ankle and, and and Achilles rehabbers who come back and have better stiffness qualities in their injured leg because they've been forced to work on it. And they start to come up with some new hamstring-type issues on their uninjured leg, which you would attribute maybe to that being the dominant leg, it's doing all the work, and maybe as a result, that's the injured leg. No, often it's because the the, the previously injured leg has this ability to be stiff, to react. Maybe their time away from, from normal training is given them maybe another speed impulse, and now the limiting factor is their uninjured leg. The fact that it can't create the RFD just like the, the previously injured leg can now. And so, you know, there is this link between ankle function, stiffness, and hamstring function. And if you can put your foot in the right place and be really stiff, the timing of your posterior chain is really sweet. It's really nice. If you can't, then actually you're just going to be asking questions.
1: You were going to mention ankle roll. uh, Shin roll, Yeah,
0: Um, uh, I want to be clear here because um, people will think that I'm saying shin roll is bad, right? And there is a, you know, I know Chris Corfis and, and, um, and Joel and quite a lot of people are really pushing shin roll as a positive thing. And what I want to be clear here is in good, in very good acceleration, especially early acceleration, we're talking about here, we're talking about team sports, we're talking about how you go from zero to nothing or how you go from walking and jogging to sprinting system roll is really what we're looking for. Not just shin roll. And by all means in a game, like maybe basketball where you are really stop, start and you're going backwards, then going forwards. Sometimes the simplest and easiest way is just to roll your shin. But you look at the great players who not don't just faint, but they faint and go and accelerate off that step. And their system rolls forwards, and and I think that's really important for us to recognise that. Just talking about shin roll and saying, look, his shin rolls forwards, so that's a good thing. That's not. I don't. I don't think that's all we're looking at. Because if we're just talking about shin roll, we're just talking about the knee being dominant. I think when you see the shoulders and shin go together, then actually you end up and the shoulders, hip and shin go together. You end up seeing a bigger acceleration of the centre of mass outside of their body. And as a result, a, a faster run. So I just wanted to be clear here. Those those guys are, are talking about good things. I think the rest of the community are kind of saying, so all we want is Shinro. It's like no, that's just a piece of the puzzle. And it brings me to this thought that um, Adam Virgil had a really nice tweet that was like, it's not black and white, and he's got he's got nice uh, infographics. Not black and white. It's it's really fifty shades of grey. Yeah, and I think we love. I love the app binary, right? So but we love to be binary in our brains, but we don't really need to. Um I think it's recognising that let's take some of the clues from some of these guys, um, but actually we do need to piece a uh, piece of picture together for ourselves.
1: For anyone that hasn't heard anyone or you specifically talk about Shinrol mm. very briefly. Oh, okay. Why why such a big talking point and why should people do more digging to, to find out more about it?
0: When we think on shin roll or when we think on acceleration, Alan's talked about big forces in short amount of times in the right direction. Yeah, that phrase has come from us looking at sport, looking at performance and looking at great performance. So if we want to go forwards in acceleration and we're standing up In our initial position what we need to be able to do is direct our forces forwards right you look to jb and samazino's work around rf ratio of force how much of the force you can create is actually being directed forwards the shin and i take this from alan the shin is our compass so when alan talks about pinning your shin if when you punch your knee forwards and you punch your foot back into the ground, if your shin is pointing in the direction that you want to go, then all you have to do is extend your hip, right? But if you actually land with your shin pointing up, so you've you've punched the knee forwards, but maybe you haven't punched it back. Maybe you've let it passively drop to the floor. You've let your foot passively drop to the floor. Your shin is now pointing up. But you want to go forwards. You've got a few choices. You could roll until your shin comes into the angle you want and then push. You could push straight away. If you push straight away, you end up pushing up. So if you end up pushing up, but you still want to go forwards, most people will just bend at the waist. And then all they're doing is just wasting a lot of energy. And so what we suggest is if you attack the ground down and back, your barman can push your body forwards and up early. And if you only attack the ground down, you will predominantly be pushing up. And you will have to compensate around your body postures in order to orientate yourself forwards. So when we're looking at, so this really comes down to uh, maybe video analysis. With a lot of the team sports right now, they've they've recognised speed vaccines been around for a while. They've recognised the need to sprint four to six times a week. You know, over you know, reach above ninety percent of your max velocity or or thereabouts, and that will prevent speed related injuries. And then maybe you just use your sport to get the relevant intensities um, done during the action, because of perception, action, and all the tactical bl- stuff that you want to include, right? But what we're also now seeing and, and, and Bristol Bears are a great example of this. I talked to Kevin yesterday and he said I can talk about it here. They're a great example of of a team that are using their speed exposures, recording everything on video, reflecting with myself and reflecting using, um, looking at the kinematics and, and the kinetics behind what they're doing and planning their SNC interventions around it and planning their... Um, or, or, or better yet, that's one snapshot. And then watching the game, watching how Pat Lamb wants to play, listening to his feedback of what players can and cannot do, and then reverse engineering that into their speed training and, and reverse engineering that into the gym. But first starting with the movement, first starting with what are they doing on the field, what are they doing when they're running, and actually, do we have a snapshot of what we want them to look like? Not a generic model, but what we've done is we've built a, uh, a model based on normative data. So for the forwards, the backs, for the faster group, the slower group, for the step length dominant, for the step frequency dominant guys, and, and, and actually starting to create a, a clearer picture about what it really means to run fast, to be efficient, um, and essentially be economic. And... So what is shin roll? What shin roll does, as well as a few other key components, but shin roll is the easiest, one of the easiest ones to see. What shin roll does is let us know, has the ground um, been attacked and has there been pre-tension in the limbs that's enabled the hip to extend aggressively and efficiently? Or actually, is there quite a lot of amortisation happening in the ankle and the knee? And are we really just having to focus more on the second part of the ground contact, making it maybe more concentric than we need to? Or actually, can we make make use of some of the elastic properties of the hip and the knee by attacking down and back into the floor? So shin roll for me, excessive shin roll for me, just like excessive trunk movement, is actually a sign of inefficiency whereas it's becoming popularized as a sign of of good acceleration mechanics so if i watch someone who just rolls their shin and their trunk stays normal or stays upright i don't see that as a good thing that that looks like we are loading the knee and encouraging a concentric uh, uh, or too much of a concentric propulsive phase of the of the stance Versus if I see a shin that stays stable or I see the shin and the shoulders roll together, stabilise together and then the hip be the the only thing that's moving. That says to me an efficient movement pattern that says to me hip, knee and ankle all contributing together and, and generally requires and results in a quiet spine. And a quiet spine is just the this, this same thing. About is the is the bum being the major driver of hip extension, or is the lumbar spine and erector spine being the major driver of hip extension? That was a long answer for just shin roll.
1: No, 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 no. Great answer, Alan. Did you want to mention anything ACL wise specifically on this point?
2: Popped into my head there while Jonas was speaking, and. It was really about, so we talked previously about the foot and the ankle and, and kind of shin roll and the associated stiffness around the calf and ankle complex. And in ACL rehab, certainly from what I've seen is that that stiffness, that tendon stiffness, that pretension, the ability to give yourself a really good platform of that shin roll and that foot and ankle to stay rigid to then allow you to push your hip forward. That tends to be one of the last things to come. Um, but... If you start adopting the strategy that we spoke about before, where we start to incorporate ankle, foot, um, shin, calf complex, strengthening work, and, and and forces specific, right? Strength is specific. So um, in modalities that represent what we know we're going to use them for. So um, in acceleration, in max velocity, in lateral um, change of direction, shapes, and, and patterns, actually... You, you chop six weeks out of what is gonna be a six week period of trying to regain that stiffness, that ankle, and um, that tendon morphology to thicken and stiffen to give yourself a platform to actually produce force. Um, and to me, that's really what we're talking about, right? And this whole philosophy is that this phase potentiation, this idea that if I know that further down the line, I'm gonna to want to accelerate hard, and that's gonna be one of my key performance metrics, that 36 weeks prior to that i've identified that and i'm going to do everything i can in my power to break down whatever the qualities are necessary to do that in this case ankle stiffness foot 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 stiffness um and, and address that early on um otherwise when you get to that end at that end point and you haven't done anything about it yet all of a sudden you realize shit. this guy's foot is landing flat He's got no tension through his calf. He's doing what Jonas said. He's rolling forwards. He's got no stability to use his bum. He's using his quad. He's probably not as fast as he previously was. So now the now the athlete and the and the SNC team are getting frustrated. This guy's not back to where he was. He's back, but he's not back. Um, he's yeah. That it's it's that approach to me that is why this is so important. And it is this example is ankle and foot, but for the whole thing, that's what it's about. It's about Understanding that this is your, this is my end journey. This is my sorry. This is my end destination. Now I've got my roadmap to make it far easier to get there instead of just blindly walking my through, myself through the forest.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in there because maybe it's important to justify why this why this is important. And and I think what is the opposite? What is the opposite to this approach? And generally, the opposite to this approach is only focusing on the physical quality around the rehab site and often letting the other qualities detrain, not on purpose, but just by the fact that we're not really stressing the, the athlete any other way. What are some of the barriers or why does is that important? I think sometimes that happens because people are scared. They don't know what to do. They're limited by what they've been taught, which we all, that's, that's all of our problems. We don't know what we don't know. Um... But also because people can't see. Like we can all look at someone doing a hop or doing some of the ACL rehab, but we can't all see what efficient movement might look like. And even if we could see it, we don't always trust our eyes. I mean, we've got a good friend, Phil Graham Smith, and uh, he's been involved in a recent research paper that uh, I think was looking at uh, a hop or triple hop um and was was basically you know a a hop or triple hop is something regularly used in in ankle knee hip based rehab to to kind of see symmetry between the limbs and something that all track coaches will probably know and, and a lot of other coaches will know anyway is that just because the hop is equal in distance doesn't mean the contribution of ankle knee and hip has been similar and great compensators which the most of the athletes that we're working with they're great compensators they'll find a way to hop further you know, last week I was 20% behind my left leg and this week I know that. So now I'm going to try and be in, as, as good as my left leg and, and I'm just going to use my knee more. Or when I land, I'm just going to land and, and take the energy more through my knee and ankle or my hip. And so I'm going to find a way around not using the injury site. Um, or I'm going to find a way... Uh, um, do you know what? There's the same research in ankle stability. This is the same, the same process that actually a period of time doing some balance exercises around the injury around the ankle showed that a lot of the evolution and a lot of the adaptation has happened in the hip. The ankle couldn't figure it out, so the hip became more stable to support the stability, whereas the ankle was the site that really was the the focus site. So I think a lot of the problems in most training comes down to the fact that coaches and, and practitioners are responsible to see movement and see what efficiency looks like and the jury is out on what that really is and so I we'll, we'll don't know what to focus on i'll focus on some numbers i'll focus on the distance and again so coming back to this research this research is kind of saying well not even the distance will give you that clarity it tells you symmetry but it doesn't tell you joint contribution and that's why I love binary. That's why I love video analysis. It doesn't have to be binary. Any video analysis, any way that we can go, let's test our bias. Let's measure an angle. Let's measure a distance. Let's measure a contribution or even a rate of acceleration. And and you know that, that has become a real big philosophy for me and has really supported me over the past 10 years of saying, I think this is happening. This is what my eyes say. And then I'll look to Dan Path or Stu or or anyone, my wife who's got great um, training eyes, and I'll say, this is what I see. And they'll say, this is what I see. And then we'll all be arguing, right? We'll all be standing, I think, I think, I think. And it's like, it's the whole, whole analogy. If we stood on a compass and I saw a W, you might see an M, you might see a three, you might see an E. Like we can argue all day. But the best thing about it is video analysis. We're now at a stage where the the quality of video we have through our iPhone is similar to lab quality, right? It's very, very trustworthy. We can look at things in super slow motion and we can now start to measure joint contribution. And, and I think that is really the next stage going forwards is by understanding what we want, worst case scenario, or just a performance model. By understanding, maybe thinking laterally and understanding what efficiency should look like, and, should, and, and how an efficient system should generate and dissipate force, we can actually start to measure it. We measure it at home. I measure my kids all the time. We play around, they do sorts, they do runs, jumps, and we measure it and say, look, here's the difference. I think now practitioners are empowered with that information. They can take it into performance. They can take it into rehab and they can ask themselves, am I actually creating players that are going to be fit for purpose? Or am I just waiting? Am I just doing some leg eccentrics and some Nordic curls? And am I just waiting for them to be able to go back to the technical coach? And and I think, you know, again, my last point here is you go to someone like Jordan Mendogucha, who's rehabbed over 500 ACLs and and how many hamstrings is rehabbed? And your best player at your best team, he's probably rehabbed them at some point. And... Um, you look at his process and he poo-poos Nordics, he poo-poos Hamstring Eccentrics, he poo-poos fascicle stuff, he poo-poos it. Now, he doesn't say it's not important. He just says that's not the key contributor to preventing injuries. It's a part of the puzzle. But prevention is this whole look of the whole, there's um, a look at the whole, uh, I guess, ecosystem of the athlete, all of the key components they need to move well, and then training that early doors. And, and the media, you just have to Google him and Google him in Spanish or Google him in Portuguese and you'll see the media love him but sometimes hate him because he sends back players after five or six months and they're ready to rock and roll. And the, and the whole medical fraternity said, that's way too fast. There's no way he's ready. You've rushed the process. And really all he's done is he's taken fear out of the system. He's sorted out all the compensations and some of the patterns that would happen in your pelvis or just happen in your leg strike because of the previous injury. And he's made a, re- a really robust movement pattern whilst respecting the, the timeline of, of, of injury, uh, of, of healing, the timeline of healing for the injured side. So it, people say he's a great physio. I think he's a great performance coach. He just happens to rehab players. And, and I think that philosophy, that mindset, challenging that mindset or challenging your mindset by getting some video analysis to support you in your process... And and also by looking back and going, maybe the way we've done it isn't the best way. It was a way, but maybe there was a better way.
2: I've got a good example of using that video with a with a international rugby player actually. Um, so he's got right to the end stage of his rehab. He um, was traveling. GPS was saying he's traveling at ten meters per second. He's real quick. He's um, he's faster than he ever has been. He's come back. He's great. Um, and. There was a subtle asymmetry going on on his injured side, and it was it was tiny. Like unless you knew exactly what you were looking for, you're never seeing it. And we put him on binary, and lo and behold, there ends up being a seven or eight percent difference in ground contact time left versus right, um, and that that was this, that tiny little piece of information changed the game in terms of what we did from our um training training modality point of view we 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 recognized you know what his system stiffness his reactivity off that that one injured side isn't quite there even though drop jumps are telling us it is and because he got good at the skill of doing the test but the test isn't running it's not running fast it's not running as sprinting um so what we did we put in more coordination extensive drilling we actually took it onto a harder surface um, to, to allow him to get more feedback going through the limb um, and also some the training effects that having a slightly harder surface would have. Um, and we started inputting um, a little bit more of an aggressive plyometric continuum uh, from single leg, particularly um, shallower angles of flexion to represent the stance side of, of, of the max velocity cycle. And we put in isometrics um, from, from the tier's work. We put in some explosive isometrics on that stance leg and two weeks later, um, he's upped his speed again, uh, way above and beyond his PB. Um, he's come back, played an extraordinary match. I think I think he actually got man the match. Um, and it's those tiny little intricacies that if if binary hadn't picked that up, if the video analysis hadn't picked that up, the numbers were he's better than he's better than he's been. Job done. Let's throw him back into the four. But that extra little piece of information meant better was actually became great. And we changed our protocol and and, and his buy into his program increased as a result of it. Um because he could see, he could get visual feedback on some of the numbers and some of the um some of the ground contact times and, and explanations around that. So I think Jonas it's just a hammer home the point. The the video analysis is so, so important to not only give the practitioners a little bit of extra information. Um, to make good decisions, but it also the rehab process is about the player. It's about buy-in. It's about engagement and motivation and that psychology of speed. And I think that's exactly what what it gave him. It's, a, it's another. It's almost like the glitter on top.
0: And and you know when um when you you hear Alan talk, you could go BS. Did the man of the match come from the fact that his ground contact times reduced by you know 500 or so whatever it is? Um, but the the reality is, especially injury, can be quite depressing. And you can see some of the biggest characters really lose some of their fire. And even when they return or they're returning, they don't always come back with all of their confidence. They might be starting, they might be playing, but they that half a gap that they would normally go through, they don't go through. That you know, they they second guess maybe stepping off of that leg or or whatever it is. They they um they give themselves more space when defending a player because they they're not really sure if the player goes if they could go with him. And so those small nuances of confidence can be really addressed if they believe their limiting factor has been addressed. So I know for a fact that changing. the the kinematics especially if it's linked to changes in kinetics so basically don't not just reducing ground contact time increasing acceleration increasing speed is a big deal and it makes a big deal either for speed reserve or for for actual very specific actions but let's say it was placebo yeah i'm i'm underselling my brand here but let's just say it's placebo yeah The effect it has on players, their perception, the effect it has on managers and coaches who today tell you he's played an alright game but I need this to change. Or players come to you and say I felt good today but if I look at the mistakes I made I really attribute it to my injury. Or attribute to something. Perception action guys could say, yeah, but he wasn't, he wasn't scanning well. He didn't perceive the environment. Great. But part of that perception action tri, tri- um, triad is the performer. And if the performer doesn't believe they can do something, they ain't going to do it or they're going to do it half assed. And so I, I always come back to being able to reflect and react with the players. On reflection of a session or on reflection of a certain quality, they say, "I believe" or "I don't believe," and my reaction is to say, "Right, here is the solution. Now maybe you'll believe. The solution's gone from here to here. The feeling of that of you know that quality has gone from here to here, and now my balls are big. Now I feel I'm ready to go. Yeah, and so I definitely see that, and and I think we undersell." the power of psychology. We recognize what bad psychology does. We don't want the, di- the dickheads in the group. We don't want the guys that are bringing down the group. We don't want cliques of people forming in our team that almost go against our culture, but we, we don't give enough credit to what good energy can create, what good feelings um, of success in training, and what small wins can do. If you're going six months of rehab, you can't just set goals around your Nord board and your KingCom or something or your CMJ. You need some goals that feel like training related goals. And again, they can't just be GPS because that's almost just the what. What volume did you cover? Not the how, you know, not could it be more efficient or more effective? It doesn't empower you with any information um, as, a, as an athlete or sometimes not even as a practitioner. So there is this psychology of speed thing that I always come back to. I think most of my philosophy has been based around influencing people's perceptions, just as much as it is been about influencing maybe their movement patterns. Um, again, I, I digress. I don't really know where I've, I've come from to get <laughs> Class, no, no
1: I that I think I think we could absolutely definitely keep going. However, my wife's going to burst in every any second. Oh, is with, it? Uh, I know mm. it's flying. It it's all mm. good though. It's fine. It's fine. But one last thing, you guys have got some exciting stuff in this area coming up over the next couple of months where can people keep up to date with when that drops yeah
0: Jones, i guess so.
1: is that for you yeah i guess so.
0: <laughs> look social media is the is now the best free advertising in the world isn't it yep so you know most of it's going to be on social media where i have run and we've had over 500 people sign on to our virtual internship over the past uh, four months it's been amazing every major sport in every league like we've had great practitioners on some people i look to are now buying into my stuff so I'm really happy but it's been long it's 40 hours of content it, you really have to be into it and it can take 12 weeks to get through Whereas now what we're doing is we're synthesizing that into a, a simpler model. Um, we're going to do some micro learning around it, and it's going to be really focused on the SSC coach. So over the summer we're going to create a bit of a, a bit of content for you guys to um, to buy into and to listen and to learn and to follow, and that's really just there to simplify this whole speed thing, take away speed and make it efficiency, and giving you guys the the building blocks to be able to work on that. So we'll, we'll um, be dropping that soon. No doubt you'll be tweeted and you'll be reposting it for us.
1: Of course. As always. As always. No doubt. Thank you very much, guys. Alan, absolute pleasure to finally uh, put a face to a name. And and pleasure. Pleasure's all mine.
2: Tell my message this morning. I was like, I can't believe I'm going to be on the PC Performance Podcast. So there the PC Performance
1: Podcast. Stop right. it. Stop the it. The
0: millions man. of <laughs> downloads. Yeah. <laughs>
1: As Jonas, it's a pleasure as always. Excited to see what comes out in the next couple of months.
0: Keep doing what you guys do. Keep smashing it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Have a good one, guys. Cheers, guys. Good morning. Bye bye. Thank
1: you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you agree that that episode, that last hour and 20 minutes, was an absolute goldmine and you enjoyed the episode just as much as I did. Secondly, Thank you so much to Jonas and Alan for giving up their time. It's taken a little while to line up, but I'm so glad we got it done because, like I say, that episode was superb. Also, a big thank you to sponsors and thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do that now. And every Thursday morning, UK time, you will get an industry-leading expert dropped in on your phone via your chosen podcast app So thanks again for tuning in and I will speak to you next week.